Hi. Uh, the reading from God's Word today is Mark, the whole chapter, uh, whole whole chapter of nine, chapter nine. How about we say that? Um, I'm going to take the first half, and then Ben will come up and finish this out. So if you have a Bible, you can grab it, follow along with me here. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they had come to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came uh, running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing the boy terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, Oh, are we done? That's it? All right. That's it. Thanks, Ben. Here's Matt. (laughs) 
chapter. There's a few verses you're going to need to pick up on next week. Okay. All right. How's everybody doing? Good. Okay. So our passage today, we divided it up into like two chapters, you know, read the first part, the beginning, second part here just after. First part is the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountaintop. Second part is this encounter with a demon-possessed boy uh, and his father at the base of this mountain. Uh, So rather than us work through uh, this passage like it's an isolated piece of scripture, I want us today to consider this teaching, the the through line of Jesus' teaching in previous weeks and how it leads us to the top of this mountain for this transfiguration and then down to the bottom of the mountain for an exorcism and then how it points us to a hilltop in Jerusalem with the cross. Um, the big idea for this passage that I'd like for us to consider and kind of wrestle with today is that the kingdom of God is coming in power, but the path is through sacrificial death. So uh, I know that sounds pretty heavy, uh, but uh, there's good news for us here today. Uh, there's encouragement for us today in the scripture passage, uh, but that's where we're going. So before we get moving, let me uh, stop and pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for a time to gather together as your people, as the church who are redeemed by Jesus. God, we want to be shaped by your word. Uh, We want to be challenged. Uh, We want to be led by uh, your spirit. And so would you meet us here today and speak through your word. We trust that you'll do that. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, in this season, we're working through the gospel of Mark as a church family. And as you've probably noticed by our scripture readings each week, we're going through it at a pretty fast pace, big chunks of scripture uh, each week. Um, And there's certainly value in slowing down and going through scripture, uh, teaching on it uh, verse by verse, little bit by bit, and picking up on all the nuances of kind of what's going on and great depth within a book. Um, but sometimes that approach, we can, we can miss the forest for the trees, you know, when we're kind of going at a slow pace. And so we figured we're going to take this on at a pretty fast pace. And what we're trying to do as we're unpacking scripture uh, at this way is we're, we're hoping to gain a perspective of the broader narratives and themes that are going on in the book of Mark as we're going through this, uh, trying to see how all this is stitched together. So that's why I want us to kind of look at what, what has happened the last couple weeks and how it leads us to this scripture. Uh, some of you may not have been here uh, this last week uh, when Nicole uh, was teaching, uh, so we'll kind of recap here in a minute. Um, but the big, kind of the theme that's going on in this pocket of Mark is really about uh, sight. It's about blindness and people getting sight. Jesus wants his disciples, he wants their eyes to be open so that they can really truly see his identity so that they can really truly see his kingdom for for what it is. But right now, uh, his disciples aren't there yet. They're still blind to a lot of what Jesus is trying to teach them. Uh, So let's recap last week for those who weren't there and for those of us who have slept since uh, last Sunday. uh, If you have your Bible, your paper Bible, as uh, Ben is referring to it, I guess, uh, or if you have a digital Bible, that's fine too. You probably have headers Uh, I want us to use those headers this week. So if you have your Bible, turn it to chapter 8, and we're going to kind of quickly recap what happened last week. What is the first header in your Bible? Yours may be different than mine. First header of your Bible from last week, chapter 8. What's the first thing that happens? 
Jesus feeds the 4,000. That's right. So this is, this is the second time that Jesus has done that. He fed 5,000 a couple chapters ago, and in this he shows that he is the bread of life. What happens after that? What's the next header? Pharisees demand a sign. So uh, Jesus then rebukes them for being faithless. What's the next one after that? Anyone? Yeah, my, my Bible uh, has one before that. It has uh, Jesus warning his disciples of uh, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, which is unfaithfulness. And he says, you have eyes, can't you see? And then after that, he heals a blind man, which Mark is using this as a way of like pointing to the reality that still his disciples are not fully seeing. So he's healing a blind man to kind of give them a picture of seeing his kingdom in fullness. And what happens after that? What's the next, uh, after the blind man, what happens after that? Anyone else? Bible? If you've already gone, you can go again. Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ. So this is a turning point in the book. It's super important. Uh, Jesus says, this is who I believe, who we believe you are. You're the Messiah. And Jesus acknowledges this. So it's a turning point in the book. But then Jesus does something that's really unsettling for the disciples. What does he say after that? It's the next header. What's he do? He predicts his death, which is very unsettling for this band of followers of Jesus they're like, all right, you are the Messiah, great. And then he predicts that he's going to have to die. That's where this movement is headed, this messianic movement. And so Peter stands up, and he actually rebukes Jesus. And he says, nope, that's not the way it's going to be. That's not the way that you build kingdoms. Uh, that's not the way that Rome did it. That's not the way that Greece did it, Persia, Babylon. None of them did it. If we're going to build a kingdom that has no end, which is what God promised King David that there would be a king whose kingdom would never end? How does this work if you're going to die? This doesn't make any sense. And so Jesus turns around and he rebukes Peter for saying that. What does Jesus, Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me. Ouch. That's tough, right? But that's how serious this is. Jesus says, you are seeing things from a human point of view and not from God's. You're, you're not seeing things rightly yet. So we're still kind of bumping up against that theme of blindness, not seeing things correctly yet. So then Jesus closes with the teaching last week. He says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to give up your life. You have to give up your way of doing things, and you have to take up your cross and follow me. And here's where we're going. We're going to Jerusalem. And from this point forward in Mark, you'll see Jesus is talking about his death often. So it's not exactly like what you would think of as like a great like pep talk to like inspire people. Like we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die there. But this is far from a powerless and hopeless movement. In fact, it's quite the opposite of that as we'll see in today's scripture. Jesus tells his disciples that if they do give up their lives for the sake of the good news of his kingdom, that that is actually how they will truly save their lives. And he's about to teach them about something that's very important. He's about to teach them about resurrection, which is a key component for this whole good news story. Without it, the whole thing breaks down. Um, and then the last thing he says is, some of you standing here will not die before you see the kingdom of God arriving in great power. So that's kind of what happened last week, and it brings us to today. So what happens in our passage today? 
Well, it starts with Jesus taking his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they walk up this mountain together, and there Jesus is transfigured. So the glory of God shines in Jesus, and he is bright white. His clothes are bright white, and his glory is on full display, so much that it is terrifying to these disciples up there. They're scared because Jesus is so bright, and they don't know what's going on. And then Moses and Elijah... If you don't know this, they were people who lived and died a long time ago, 900 to 1,500 years ago or so. They show up, and they start talking to Jesus on this mountaintop, and the disciples are just taking this all in. And then a thick cloud comes down over the mountain, and the voice of God, the audible voice of God the Father speaks and says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. So that's a lot to take in. I think it's a lot for us to take in if we're being honest. And so um, what I want us to do, uh, this passage of Scripture is supposed to remind us of uh, other parts of Scripture. It's supposed to be reminiscent of things that have been happening in the story of God up to this point. And I'm a big uh, Bible Project fan, and one of the things that they talk about, I don't know if we have any other Bible Project fans, but uh, they talk about, like, sometimes you'll read a certain passage of Scripture, and it's like it has a bunch of hyperlinks in it, you know, like... uh, if you were to click on a link in this passage, that it would take you back to another story earlier on in the Bible that would give you better context about what's going on. And I like that approach. And so I want us to like pretend that we're like reading this transfiguration account, like a Wikipedia uh, page or whatever. And there's all these like blue lines, you know, like text that's blue with underline. As we read this story, as we consider transfiguration, what are some of the other stories in the Bible that you see showing up or that seems similar to what's happening here in the Transfiguration account? Shout them out. Moses went to the high mountain to meet God and was a savior of his people. Moses, Mount Sinai, God speaking to him there. Good, yeah. Anything else? Yeah. The other time that God has spoken audibly. God the Father has spoken audibly. was at the baptism of Jesus when he came up. This is my son whom I love. Anything else? Seem similar to anything else? What about Jesus like very, like very bright white, like shining, Piper? Not today. Sometime soon. No, hopefully. Um, super bright, uh, white uh, Jesus. Anyone, does that ring a bell for anyone? Revelation, Revelation yeah. These, yeah, but not for, not for them. One of the most important like, passages of Scripture that a lot of people in Israel would hang on to was in the book of Daniel. It was a vision that Daniel had in chapter 7 that shows... Uh, the ancient of days sitting on a throne and the son of man whose clothing was and his hair was white as snow. And he sits on this throne and in this vision that Daniel has, the son of man was given an honor and authority over all the nations and he was given a kingdom that would not end. So the Israelites were waiting for this like bright shining son of man to show up and usher in this kingdom. Um, the other uh, hyperlink that I didn't pick up on this until I was reading commentary, but uh, was uh, Elijah also met 
God on Mount Sinai, and God spoke to him. So we'll talk about that a little bit. So uh, lots of hyperlinks and what's going on here. Uh, if, you're, uh, uh, if you were a studied Israelite, like uh, this would be ringing a lot of bells of kind of what is going on here and what this means to um, the people of God. So Moses and Elijah, uh, both super important characters in the story of God. They both encountered God on Mount Sinai. So uh, Carol uh, reminded us that Moses received the law from God in the book of Exodus up on the mountaintop. He went up there, and then a thick cloud uh, that actually represented God's presence descended on the mountain, just like what's happening here. Um, And there God spoke to Moses, and he gave him instructions for the law, how God's people were to live. He gave Moses instructions about how the people were to build a tabernacle because God's plan was he wanted to make his dwelling place. He wanted to live in the middle of his people. Um, And then Moses came down from this encounter on the mountain with God. And what was his appearance like when he came down from the mountain? He was glowing. Yeah, that's right. It freaked people out. They're like, you're glowing. And so he had to put a veil over his face. Yeah? Yeah? Joshua, I think, stayed lower, but Moses went up actually into the presence of God. Uh, Moses and Elijah were the ones that were in the transfiguration, yeah. So yeah, that's right. So uh, Moses came down, he's shining, he has to put on a veil to cover his face because he's scaring people, Uh, but the reason he was glowing was because he was actually in God's presence. Something about God's glory like rubbed off on him, and when he came down, he was shining. Um, Elijah he actually also met with God um, on Mount Sinai. So after Elijah's epic showdown with with the prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel, he called down uh, the fire of God onto an altar, uh, burned it up, even though it was uh, covered in water. Uh, They killed the prophets of Baal, and this really angered uh, Queen Jezebel. So she sent her people after him, and he escaped. Uh, into the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights is how long this journey took him, and he ends up at Mount Sinai. He goes up to the top of Mount Sinai, and he's beat down, right? He's discouraged. He feels alone, and God actually meets him there on this mountaintop on Mount Sinai. So there was a, a great wind, but God wasn't in the great wind. There was a great earthquake. God wasn't in that. And there was a fire. God wasn't in that. But then God shows up in this whisper, and Elijah knows that God's presence in there, and he encourages Elijah, Elijah, and he gives him instructions on where he's to go and reminds him that he's not alone. So there's all these, like, encounters that God has had with his people on mountaintops. So there's something, like, really significant in kind of what's going on in this story here. But there's also something that's very different with this encounter than with theirs. Um, for starters, like, Elijah and Moses met, met with God on Mount Sinai. This is not Mount Sinai. Um, and also while Moses and Elijah both spoke on behalf of God, so God gave them a message, and it was their job to come down and speak on behalf of God, Jesus is actually the word of God made flesh. So God, the Father, when he gives this message in the transfiguration, he doesn't say, this is Jesus, my son. Now, Jesus, go tell them what to say. He actually says, listen, listen to him. God the Father is affirming that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus is the Word of God, that Jesus is the one who knows the path to true and eternal life. So the Father is putting Jesus in an entirely different category than Elijah and of Moses. 
Jesus isn't reflecting the glory of God like Moses. He's not shining because he's been in God's presence. He is God, and so he is shining himself. This is what uh, is going to be up on the screen as well. The author of Hebrews says this in chapter 1. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the son of God. And what is the last instruction that Jesus gave his disciples in Mark? We just went over it before he takes his disciples out for the transfiguration. What did he tell them? Say it out loud. After he predicts his death, he says, yeah, that was on the, in the transfiguration. After he says that he's going to die and he rebukes Peter, he then says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and follow me. So the divine plan is coming into focus, and the way that this king is going to lead his disciples is through the cross. When uh, Peter sees this glory and power that's on display with Jesus up on the mountaintop, uh, you know, Scripture says that he's kind of responding, you know, in fear and un- unsure of what to say. Um, when he says, let's build three tabernacles and let's, let's hang out here for a while. Um, but also some of the commentators said something that I thought was really interesting. Uh, they said that they thought that also by making this recommendation that Peter may be revealing some of his desire still for a way around the cross. Remember, Jesus just rebuked, or Peter just rebuked Jesus about wanting to die, and then Jesus in turn rebuked him and said, this isn't, this isn't the way. The way is through the cross. Um, so maybe Peter is trying to, you know, he's maybe seeing a, a pathway that maybe we don't have to go through the cross here. He's seen this vision of Jesus and his glory and power, and, you know, maybe there's this desire to hold on to it. You know, why can't we just have this here and now? Let's build a tabernacle for the three of you. Um, and I thought that that was, you know, m- meaningful for us as the church, or at least kind of drew me in. But I think we can also be tempted to want to hold on to uh, hold on tightly to a vision of power and glory for us in this age. Um, I think we've we've seen that a lot when the church is looking for power here and now. That oftentimes that leads us usually leads us away from the cross, away from God's kingdom, and it actually usually looks more like cultivating political power um, because it's not the way that Jesus points us toward here. So what Peter, James, and John see is a preview of the reality to come. It's a preview, and uh, it's maybe where we get the, the phrase a mountaintop experience, which is, you know, this amazing experience up top. Jesus has been healing the blind. He's been helping them see, and now his disciples are actually, he's helping them to see. He's opening up their eyes to his kingdom and the power and authority that he has. <clears throat> but Jesus also instructs him not to tell anyone else until he's been raised from the dead, uh, which is like, they're like, what? Raised from the dead? Resur- resurrection is what he's talking about. And resurrection uh, isn't a new concept to Israelites. Uh, many Israelites believed in resurrection. This would be something that would happen at the end of the age but what they didn't have a concept for was for one person who would be resurrected in the middle of the current age 
Uh, this was like a completely new idea uh, that Jesus was saying, that Jesus was going to be teaching them would be happening. Because Jesus' resurrection is actually a foretaste of what is to come for us. Um, it's a picture of what we can hope for. There's something beyond this life that we should set our eyes on so that we will see the purpose of our life clearly. That this life here and now is not all there is for us, which is why we can trust Jesus and why we can lay down our lives for his kingdom. Resurrection is super important for that. We also need to remember the mountaintop. Peter comes back to this encounter on the mountain later in his life. Uh, in the book of Second Peter, this is going to be up on the screen. I'm going to read this uh, from the message, uh, uh, which is just a little bit more of like in familiar, you know, everyday language, paraphrase uh, translation. This is what it says, and this is Peter. He says, we weren't, you know, just wishing on a star when we laid the facts out before you regarding the powerful return of our master, Jesus Christ. We were there for the preview. We saw it with our own eyes. Jesus, resplendent with light from God the Father as the voice of majestic glory spoke. This is my son, marked by my love, focus of my delight. We were there on the holy mountain with him. We heard the voice of heaven with our very own ears. We couldn't be more sure of what we saw and heard. God's glory, God's voice. The prophetic word was confirmed to us, and you would do well to keep focusing on it. It's the one light you have in a dark time as you wait for daybreak and the rising of the morning star in your hearts. So Peter obviously views this encounter, even though it was scary uh, to him, he views it as a reminder and guarantee to himself and to others of Jesus' power and authority of the promised kingdom to come, that this isn't just made up. They're not just making this up. It's not just a fantasy. Peter saw it with his own eyes, and he needed to be reminded of this, and we need to be reminded of this mountaintop experience. Jesus invited these disciples up on the mountaintop for a reason, and at least one of those reasons was for them to be a witness, just like we are to be a witness to other people. So if the transfiguration is a preview of the glory to come in the next age that should give us hope and purpose in the current life, what does the kingdom breaking into this age look like? So for that, we get to come down off the mountain with Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And when they get down to the base of this mountain, this happens right after, they encounter this scene that is like chaotic. There's this large crowd that's gathered at the base of the mountain uh, the, the nine disciples that are remaining, they're apparently off arguing with the teachers of the law, the Bible experts. And Jesus is like, What's going, what, is, what are you arguing about? And it turns out that there's this really awful situation where there's this boy who's actually possessed by an evil spirit, by a demon. And uh, it has caused him to lose his ability to speak. He's mute. And then he has these violent seizures, foaming at the mouth. It's this really awful, scary situation. The evil spirits even tried to kill this boy uh, by throwing him into fire and water. And we know that this isn't just like a medical, like it's not just epilepsy or a medical condition because when Jesus asked for the boy to be brought close to him, uh, this evil spirit causes the boy to convulse. And there's something really dark and evil and oppressive that's happening in this, in this situation with this poor boy. And this father who has brought his son all this way He's desperate. And Jesus asked him, like, how long has this been happening? He's like, since this boy has been little. So probably most of this boy's life, this has been going on. And then to top it off, he's 
this father is disappointed because he's brought his son to the disciples who are supposed to have the power to be able to deal with this, and they fail to cast out the demons. And so Jesus responds with a strong rebuke. He says, you faithless people, how long must I put up with you? Yikes. Like Strong rebuke, you know? And at first reading, if you just hear that and read it kind of at face value, the first time I read it, I was like, oh, man, he's rebuking the Father, you know? Like, is that who he's rebuking in this? Um, and it seems like it's actually much more likely that he's not rebuking the Father. It seems much more likely that he's rebuking his disciples um, and the teachers of the law who they're arguing with off to the side because they're still not getting it. They still don't see rightly. They're still blinded to what is going on here and what their role should be. The disciples have failed to minister to this poor father and son from a posture of prayerful dependence on God. Instead, when Jesus comes down, they are found off to the side arguing with the Bible experts. And that, to me, really hits home in my current context. Because I wonder, like, how often are we as the people of God neglecting the brokenness in the world because we've also neglected prayer, the power that empowers us to be a part of Jesus' kingdom breaking into this world? Because we've neglected prayer and then because we're focused on winning an argument somewhere. That's what I was thinking about. I was like, how much are we like, there's someone over here hurting, and instead of being prayerful and, and entering into that suffering with them, we're off over here and we're just trying to win an argument and we think that that's what the kingdom looks like, you know? The disciples' faithlessness has kept this boy and his father from the liberation and healing power of God's kingdom that's available to them here and now because Jesus is here. The word of God is here. The boy is held captive by the rulers of this present darkness, and Jesus has come to break those powers and destroy Satan's enslaving grip on the world. And this reminds me of the passage in Luke 4. This is going to be up on the screen as well. This is when Jesus first started his ministry. He reads from the scroll of Isaiah, and it's, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released and the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And Jesus tells him, this is, this is, this is uh, come true. Uh, you're seeing this fulfilled right now with me here. That's what Jesus came to do. And I wonder if we are messengers of this type of kingdom that Jesus is talking about here, why he came, or if we have a different kingdom in mind. It looks differently. It looks more like something created in our image. So this father, back to the father, he says, have mercy on us because they're both suffering. Like this dad is in the midst of awful suffering. It's not just this boy that's suffering. He says, help us if you can. Help us if you can. So Jesus questions him, and he says, what do you mean if I can? And I don't read this as much as maybe it was a rebuke. I don't know. But to me, this feels like more of an invitation, you know, that Jesus is inviting him into faith. He says anything is possible if a person believes. You have to think that Jesus, also in saying this, is probably addressing his his disciples off to the side, the, the Bible experts off to the side. Anything is possible if you believe. 
And the father, you know, um, he receives this. Um, I think Jesus is telling him, the disciples, he's saying, don't be part of this faithless generation. Trust in me, believe in me. And the father, he says something profound here. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. It says he cries out. It's the same language as like when Jesus cries out on the cross. It's the same language as when the blind man, Bartimaeus, cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. It's just like this overflowing of just like, I believe, help my unbelief. So he's desperate now, but he's not hopeless. And here Jesus gives us a picture of resurrection, of new life. So Jesus rebukes the demon uh, out of the boy, tells it to leave, to never come back. And then the boy just appears to be dead and lifeless on the ground, just laying on the ground. And Jesus takes his hand and he, Scripture says, he raises him up. And the language that Mark is using here of him being dead and Jesus raising him are very intentional. It's resurrection. It's, It's death and resurrection language. Jesus is breaking the power of darkness, and he's giving this boy and his father a new life, resurrection life. He's giving us a picture of that. So you see, even though the father, the father who came, and he said, if you can, help us if you can, even though the father confessed his doubt, it was intermingled with faith. He's actually the one who's the model for us here. You know, not the disciples who are off, who are off fighting and bickering, you know, who have neglected to pray. He's the one who acknowledges his doubt, who asks for more faith in this situation. The disciples are still seeing things from a human point of view and not from God's. So I wonder, like, who are we most like in this story? Like, who do you resonate more with? And probably it changes for us at different times. I think Jesus wants us as the church to not just go about our individual lives on our own, but rather to live collectively as the living embodiment of Jesus here on earth, to serve and to set people free from bondage. So what would this look like for us at Salt and Light if we were to consider this and pursue this together? Is the Spirit revealing something to you about an area where you know that there's brokenness, you know that there's an area where sin has taken over someone's life, you know there's an area where someone's doubting and disbelieving what it would look like where we leaned into those situations and pursued reconciliation in those. Galatians 2.20, this is going to be on uh, the screen behind me. This is Paul. He says it this way. He says, For I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this is what a crucified life looks like. As Jesus' kingdom breaks into this current age, it looks like freedom from bondage. It looks like God's people giving away their lives sacrificially. The glory and power of the kingdom will come in the age that is to come. Jesus gave us a preview of that in the transfiguration. And we're going to share in that glory with Jesus, but right now our calling is to take up our cross and follow Jesus to give away our lives so that others can experience freedom, to see the people who are hurting and suffering who need to experience freedom. But it's easy for us to want the power and the glory now, you know? That's, I think, a normal bent for us, unfortunately, as humans. 
So all this reminds me of one of the songs we've been singing a lot lately. It's Simple Kingdom. And there's this line near the end. It says, your kingdom is backwards. It flows in reverse. What you call a treasure, this world calls a curse. The small become great and the last become first. Your kingdom is backwards. Lord, teach us to serve. As it is with your kingdom, let it be with your church. So that's a posture for us. But I think there's also, there's good news. All this is good news for us. But there's good news specifically here for us because although the way of Jesus, it leads to the cross. Jesus calls us to die to ourselves, to follow him. Um, death is not the end point for Jesus or for us. Death certainly isn't our hope because Jesus came to defeat death through his death. If Jesus had stayed dead in a tomb somewhere, there would be no hope of a better kingdom. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians that if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then all of this, all this that we're doing is a waste of time. It's pointless. If Jesus is still dead, then we are to be pitied above everyone in the world. But Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. Our hope is resurrection and the defeat of death once and for all. And our hope is in a good king and a perfect kingdom without end. So that is our hope. Jesus is giving us glimmers of resurrection life with this boy and his father. He's also giving us a preview of the power and glory of his kingdom in the transfiguration, transfiguration on the mountaintop. The call for us today, what I want us to kind of wrestle with, and we're going to pray together here in a minute. For those of us who call Jesus our king, we're called to lay down our lives for his kingdom, to place his kingdom and his calling above everything else in our own lives, to reorder everything else around that. Because we still find ourselves in a world that's broken by sin. There's still a lot of people out there who are still held captive by the enemy. And it may not be as visibly evident as you know someone uh, demon-possessed, foaming at the mouth and things like that, but that oppression and that like people being held in bondage is real. It's a reality that exists today out in the world. Jesus came to set people free. And he invites us to be a part of that with him. We just have to pay attention. We have to listen to him and we have to depend on him in prayer. So let's take a posture as prayerful people who are dependent on Jesus. Let's be spirit-led people to be aware of what God is doing around us. Let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, remembering what his kingdom looks like. And let's be willing to submit to his vision instead of our own. So we're going to take communion here in a minute. Before we do that, though. I want us to just take a couple minutes. I want to lead us through a time of prayer. So if you just uh, bow your heads and let's pray together. I want you to take just a minute and I want you to pray as Jesus calls us to submit to his kingdom, as he invites us to take up his cross. He invites us to trust him that what he has is better for us. He invites us to reorder our priorities around his kingdom and around King Jesus. And if we're doing that on our own, that's impossible. So would you just take a minute and would you pray that God would, through his spirit, reorder your life around his kingdom? Would you ask God to help you with that? reveal areas where just your priorities are 
upside down because they're focused on you and not Jesus and his kingdom. Pray for the ability to submit to Jesus where he leads. You know, sometimes he leads us in hard paths of sacrifice because it's worth it. Next, I want us to take a minute and I want us to pray that when we see uh, brokenness and oppression in the world because it's still all around us, would you pray that God would give you a posture of prayerful dependence, that we would be a prayerful people, that we don't miss what's going on, but that also we don't try and fix it ourselves, that the one who really has the power to save and to heal to restore people and to give them freedom is here and his name's Jesus. We can't do it on our own though. So we have to be prayerful people. We have to be dependent on Jesus and on his spirit. Is there someone that comes to mind for you? Someone who is dealing with just hard stuff, who's dealing with oppression and brokenness, who honestly just, is someone who seems like they're in bondage. Just pray for them right now. Pray for them. Pray that God would bring deliverance into their life, that you would get to be a part of that. Pray for healing. And if there's no one that comes to mind, pray that God would bring someone to mind for you or bring someone for you to encounter this week that you would be able to minister to. Not in your strength, but through the Spirit. And the last thing I want us to pray about, you may be wrestling with doubt. I think that that is a reality of being fallen humans. Even those of us who've been walking with Jesus for a long time, or people who just started walking with Jesus we all go through seasons of doubt and we wrestle with it, unsure of what we believe, who we believe in. We have to be a space. We have to be a people where it's okay to admit that. We have to be um, a space where people can come and bring their doubts, their unbeliefs. Uh, we have to encourage people to confess those things to Jesus because Jesus isn't freaked out by that in this passage, in this story. He's not freaked out about it with you. You don't need to keep your doubt to yourself. You need to bring it to other believers to encourage you, and you need to confess it to Jesus. And confess it and say, I believe, even if it's a, a seed of, of belief and faith, help my unbelief. So pray that Jesus would help you to go deeper in faith and trust in him, and that you would also be someone, a friend, a brother and sister, to encourage other people to go deeper in faith with Jesus because this is a hard journey. We need each other. Uh, when we're struggling with doubt, we need other people to encourage us and we need to be able to confess those things to Jesus. So, so we're now going to take communion together. Um, so it's in the middle of the table. Um, there's juice and wine there. Jesus says, as often as you gather, take this meal in remembrance of me. So that's what we're going to do. We're taking this bread, this wafer, and this bread, Jesus said, represents my body. 
Jesus, as the king of the world, laid down his crown in heaven and came, was born humbly, lived as a servant, and ultimately allowed himself, he handed himself over to be crucified. His body was broken so that we could be free, so that we could be set free. That's what this bread represents. And this juice, this wine represents his blood, which was shed out, shed on the cross to cover our sins, to blot out our transgressions, to make us white and pure. And the Bible says that when Jesus sees us, we are righteous like Jesus. That the the Father sees us as being pure and white and righteous like Jesus because his blood was shed on our behalf and it washes us clean. That's good news, right? So take the bread, dip it in the wine and juice, take and remember Father, we thank you for Jesus, our King. We thank you that your kingdom, Jesus, is breaking into this world, and it is a better kingdom. It is a better story to hope in. We thank you that you've not left us alone, that we're not just supposed to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but that you have sent your empowering spirit to empower your work through your church here. May you keep our eyes on you, God. We need you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.